I'm Janet Forrest, and this is The Bonds, The Mitchells, and The Dawn of Time. Last week, we learned about the parallel lives of William Bond in Boston and William Mitchell on Nantucket, and the mostly forgotten government entity known as the U.S. Coast Survey, which later evolved into the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, better known as NOAA. We also met the Coast Survey's politically adept Superintendent Alexander Dallas Bash, who would bring both Williams into his growing network of scientific minds. This network was establishing more precise surveys of the nation's coasts and developing technologies to keep more precise time. For the Mitchells and the Bonds, this was a family endeavor. Both were teaching and training their children and bringing them into their astronomical and mechanical pursuits. This is where it gets a bit complicated. It's hard to know where to begin. Perhaps the best place to start is in the front sitting room of a house on Vestal Street in Nantucket in 1831, where William Mitchell's young daughter Mariah is proving to be an apt pupil. When she was 12 and a half, she and her father viewed a solar eclipse from the Mitchell house here at 1 Uh Vestal Street, and she clocked the seconds of the eclipse, and that's what then allowed them with calculations to determine the longitude of the house. So they knew the exact latitude and longitude. Then that helped them do their astronomical work. But also, again, that goes back to the whole idea that they were considered an observatory. Every house they lived in, they always knew the latitude and the longitude of the house. That's Jason Leonardo Finger, historian and deputy director of the Mariah Mitchell Association. She often said it was a sympathy with her father that led her to astronomy. And that was because all of her siblings kind of helped out. But when it got really cold, they're like, see you later, Dad. We're not observing tonight. But Mariah would. But she said her first love was mathematics. When William was traveling, Mariah took over for him in the challenging task of calibrating ship chronometers. Just a reminder, a chronometer is a special clock that is designed to keep time consistently at sea. Before a ship can leave port, its chronometer is monitored against a clock on land over the course of several days so that the captain knows how fast or how slow the device is running and he can reset it as needed. You know, Mariah rated her first chronometer for a ship's captain when she was 14. It makes me want to choke because (laughs) (laughs) that was a serious confidence that he had in Mariah, because William was off island, to take on that task because his ship and all his men on a two, three or longer year voyage were relying on her work and her accuracy to keep them safe and to let them know where they were. And I just find that absolutely mind-blowing. I know we have kids today, 14-year-olds who are real techie and can do things, but I just picture her sitting in the Mitchell house doing this and thinking about the fact that she was, I think she was probably sweating quite a bit. Right. And to tie it back, just to explain, you know, how Mariah was rating or calibrating them, this is like, again, she had to take the sighting. Probably, let's, to make it simple, let's say it's solar noon. She has to know exactly when it's noon today, note what the clock is saying, and then wait a day, two days, three days, five days, however she's doing it, and seeing what's it saying then, but also what's the temperature, what's the humidity, 
That was Jim Borzileri, Reference Library Associate at the Nantucket Athenaeum. Because, and it took me a long time to understand this, and this is something a nine-year-old kid on Nantucket would have taken for granted, which is that the watch doesn't have to be that accurate. It just has to be predictable in its inaccuracy. Yes, yeah, you have to know what it's, how fast it's running or how slow it's running. Exactly. It's gaining a second every day, it gains two seconds. You have to have that and know that in order to make your calculations. They were loaned equipment from many different entities, including the Coast Survey. And Mariah actually kind of worked for the Coast Survey, kind of like under the radar because she assisted her father. And it was Alexander Bosch, who was the superintendent. He said to William, I, I want to hire Mariah. And William said, absolutely no, because if you do, you'll lose your job. Um, it wasn't that he didn't think Mariah could do it. And it's not that he didn't want Mariah to have the job, but he knew that the superintendent would be jobless for hiring a woman. So technically, though, she was working in the background. I think she was among one of the first women to work for the federal government. But soon, Mariah would not be able to work under the radar anymore. On a fateful night in 1847, Mariah would discover two things she had no intention of finding, a comet and fame. Well, first of all, discovering a comet was a really, really rare event back then. I mean, the telescope that she used to discover is technically a terrestrial, so it's made for the, not for looking at the heavens and it's only a two and three quarter inch refractor comet sweeping was a thing so there Mm -hmm. were people who were in quote unquote into looking for comets mariah was not necessarily actively looking for a comet she swept the sky every night she did her observations she knew particularly certain portions of the sky really well like the back of her hand you know she just knew something was there that didn't belong her comet discovery obviously launched her onto a worldwide stage. People were coming to the Athenaeum, you know, coming to Nantucket and wanting to meet the lady astronomer. Mariah documenting that, or even you look at the Athenaeum's Book of Strangers, the guest book, the, the, the amazing people who were coming to Nantucket to the Athenaeum. And yeah, Nantucket is like this microcosm. We all think, yeah, we're isolated, we're a bunch of sheep roaming around, <laughs> nothing happening here. That's far from the truth. The comet discovery was just one milestone for the Nantucket Observatory. Night after night, Mariah and William were recording their observations and passing this data along to everyone else in the network of scientists. The Nantucket Observatories, kind of William and Mariah were, were sharing their information with multiple people and other organizations. In fact, the superintendent of the Coast Survey felt so strongly about Mariah and her abilities that he took her and her brother Henry up into Maine to one of their stations up there. She spent quite a few weeks up there and he taught her how to use other pieces of equipment that she didn't know how to use, that her father didn't know how to use. That whole process involved her being meshed deeper and deeper into this ongoing network of, I don't even know what to call them. I think they would call themselves persons interested in science because the word scientist wasn't even coined until what, 1834 and it took a while for it to get over here. There are all these people that were in government, they might have been industry, they might have been private business people, but they all had this shared love of science and they all were absolutely in contact with each other. Mariah and her father and her siblings are running in the circles of some really amazing individuals who were either within the sciences, in the literary world, kind of the great thinkers and minds of the 19th century. The Mitchells were right there a part of it. Among those great minds was William Bond, who ran the workshop that was designing and building the clocks and the chronometers 
that were making the Mitchells' work possible. Bond wasn't running this by himself. The company was called William Bond and Sons because he would have seven children, five of whom would survive to adulthood, and three would become instrumental in the business and also at the observatory. Joseph, who was both an astronomer and an instrument maker, but he tended to sort of stay in the background. George Phillips would be William's successor at the Harvard Observatory. He didn't really get that involved in the business, but he, he did provide some assistance. And also, and this is someone who's going to come into play, Richard Fifield was perhaps the most mechanically inclined and probably the closest to his father in terms of being a mechanical genius, maybe even a little bit better in terms of mechanics, which is no small amount of praise. George went to Harvard. Joseph, I don't believe, did. Richard absolutely did not. He apprenticed with his father, so yet another person who is very, very accomplished, but without a degree. He would frequently travel for the government on some of the experiments with longitude. All three sons have been trained and assisted by their father since the time they were young. They hung around the observatory. And the line between the observatory and the company, William Bond and Sons, gets very, very blurry. Because when you look at what they're doing, it's really hard to say where, you know, one's participation in the business comes to an end and when does it start to work for the observatory. Originally, it was just William Cranch and his son Joseph that were in the firm. They brought Richard in about 1849. He would be used to develop some of their new tools. He also went to England and was there when their American method device was given the gold medal at the 1851 exhibition, which was a big deal. This absolutely put them on the map. The American method was William's innovation that used a telegraph key and a drum that allowed astronomers to more precisely mark solar noon, thereby dramatically increasing the accuracy of clocks. But by 1857, things had changed. Richard essentially bought out his father and his brother. He dissolved the existing partnership and agreed to pay his father and brother $17,000 plus interest over 20 years. And he also, to make this happen, borrowed $3,000 from an outside investor. So this is obviously someone who's got a lot of confidence in his own ability and is also willing to kind of swing for the fences. He, in 1857, forms a new partnership with John Morton Clinch, and they now become the two partners at William Bond and Son. Interestingly, John did not have a background in mechanics per se. His degree was in civil engineering from Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, RPI. And that was one of the first technical institutes in the country to actually offer a degree in engineering. They wouldn't offer one in mechanical engineering until 1911. It just didn't exist as a separate pursuit. So the fact that he had a degree in civil engineering meant that he had received the background in math and physics that in drafting that Richard had not because he was more of a practical, hands-on kind of person. So you can see how that relationship would complement. It's not a surprise that John Morton Clinch would be chosen as Richard's partner, as their families had been friends for years. John's father, Joseph Hart Clinch, was born in Canada, but had migrated to the U.S. with his wife, Griselda, who had deep Boston roots. In June of 1838, he was appointed the minister of St. Matthew's Episcopal Church in South Boston. And even though today we think South Boston, we think Irish, we think Irish Catholic, at the time it was still fairly rural and essentially Protestant. Now, it's not really clear where the Clinch and Bond family first met each other and they began to mesh together. William Bond was a very devout Anglican, which meant he was a member of the Episcopal Church here in America. 
And there were no Episcopal churches at that time in Dorchester. So the nearest one was in South Boston. So it's probable he was a parishioner there. And that is where he met Joseph Clinch. But obviously the families hit it off and they became very, very close. John Morton's sister, Sarah, sometimes called Sally, wrote in her memoir about spending summers at the Harvard Observatory. She was about 14 or 15, and this was in the late 1840s. Sarah alludes to the fact that she spent her summer vacations of August at the observatory. This is when the observatory was fully up and running. They had received the latest telescope, and it was a going concern. And she just describes as a young girl watching William Bond and his son George, among others, conduct their observations of the sun. They were looking for sunspots. And you would say every once in a while, they would come down and call the children in to take a look at something that was particularly interesting. They were very, you know, they were very open and very outgoing with the, I guess what we would call the visitors and the neighborhood children. While there are many holes in the documented history between the Bonds and the Clinches, there's enough to show that they were lifelong friends. For instance, Sarah and John's father was the officiant at George Bond's wedding. And we'll see how tight those ties really were when it comes time for Richard to make a succession plan for Bond and Sons. But we're not quite there yet. So Richard essentially restructured the business. He reduced his role at the observatory. He had his team in place to do the day-to-day manufacturing work. They continued to manufacture the chronometers. Sometimes they would buy parts in bulk from European manufacturers and assemble themselves. In a few cases, they built them from the ground up. And Richard would spend the rest of his life, though, trying to build the most accurate clocks available. Now, these would not be ship clocks. These would be ones that would be used at the observatory. So when you look overhead and you know exactly when it's solar noon, this is able to tell you to a hundredth, if not a thousandth of a second, what that time is. And it is the result of that accuracy that the signal that is sent out via telegraph is as precise as it is. So his plan was to build only a handful of these clocks for the major observatories. And according to his plan, one would go to Harvard, one would go to the observatory in Liverpool, which is what they had been working with, particularly for longitude, and the third would stay with the company. What he did is essentially in modern entrepreneurial terms, he set up the company, he set everybody else to do the going work, he had John there to handle the day-to-day work, and now he could focus on R&D. Over at the Harvard Observatory, Richard's brother George was also coming into his own. In 1858, William Cranchbond Sr. dies. His son George inherits the position. There's some controversy about how come he's got it, but he was his father's assistant, and he did actually have a degree. But there was some ill feeling from other people who might have felt that they were equally qualified. There is another life event later that year that would play an important role in the story of Bond and Sons. Remember John's sister, Sarah? Also at the end of 1858, Sarah and Richard marry. Uh, It is performed by the presiding bishop of Massachusetts, which gives you an idea of the family status. Uh, They would in turn have three children between 1860 and 1863. So Richard buys a small, what is called an estate, not far from the observatory in Cambridge. And he and Sarah begin to set up their life. Do we know if Sarah and Richard married for love or if that was sort of an arranged kind of proper marriage? Oh, I think it was for love. I don't get any sense of it being anything else. There is a bit of an age difference. Richard was born in 1827. She's born in 1835. So they're about seven or eight years apart. So when they first know each other, 
you know, as kids, there's going to be no interest. But by the late 1840s, Sarah's 14, 15 years old, Richard's 21, 22. He's now been brought in as a partner. You know, he might suddenly be seeing her in a very, very different light, even though they've known each other since they were you know, quite young. He was a catch. He was a handsome devil. I mean, all kidding aside, <laughs> we, we will definitely have to put the pictures up. He had quite a mustache. He was quite tall, thin. He was athletic. He was quite striking. So to recap, Richard is living with his wife, Sarah, and their three kids in Cambridge and busy running Bond and Sons. Meanwhile, George has taken over the Harvard Observatory. Like the Bonds and the Clinches, a similar relationship has been formed between the Bonds and the Mitchells. Mariah Mitchell is communicating not just with William Bond, but also with his son, George, who is now his assistant, as well as some of the others. And Mariah and George were very close. I mean, you look at their letters, they're absolutely chatty about, oh, I've seen this. Have you seen that? And of course, meanwhile, George was also a math, maybe genius is a little a little much, but he was extremely, extremely gifted in terms of mathematics. So he would be helping Mariah as Mariah was sitting at the Nantucket Athenaeum trying to teach herself these really advanced books in celestial navigation and high-end calculus. So you see them writing letters like, this theorem of Euler, I don't understand it. And George would break it down for her. And they were constantly, by then, I guess there was a decent enough railroad off the Cape that they were starting to travel back and forth on a fairly regular basis. The Harvard College Observatory then also offered, in a way, Mariah and William another place to go and to use even better equipment because they were loaned equipment by the Coast Survey, by West Point, by Harvard, to do the work that they were doing. But Harvard had the up-and-coming everything by later points. So it was great for them to have. Mariah and George were definitely close. There's kind of family legends of, you know, did they, didn't they, did they fall in love? Did they not fall in love? And, um, you know, he wound up marrying somebody else. Um, But Mariah was also pretty steadfast in wanting to remain single because if she had gotten married, she might not have been able to do the things that she did. You'll remember from episode one that in the early 1800s, Americans were still looking in the rearview mirror at the Revolutionary War. Even though the public desperately needed the innovation that the U.S. Coast Survey was advocating for, it was still very suspect of too much government involvement. So Superintendent Alexander Bash had to work within certain limitations and get a little creative. For instance, while the Bonds and the Mitchells were working closely with each other, Technically, they were all independent contractors. Another hurdle to overcome, or sidestep, was that the Coast Survey was not allowed to build an official government observatory. So they started to use the Harvard Observatory as their unofficial observatory. So you've got William Bond, plus most of his children, most of his sons at least, are hired as contractors as well, especially during the issue of longitude, which became a very, very big effort in the early 1840s. And you've got William Mitchell taking observations as part of a network that began at the Harvard Observatory. Ironically, the effort to prevent too much power from falling into the hands of the government created an opportunity for the Bonds to consolidate their power. So that by mid-century, you had the Harvard Observatory, the Coast Survey, who are the people who were doing the actual mapping of the U.S. coast, and something else called the Nautical Almanac, who were publishing 
essentially the star charts into say at a given date this is where venus will be because of those three entities cambridge was sort of the, a very major intellectual hub in the united states and of course behind the scenes William Cranchbond, to support himself, still kept his business, and he was building the instruments and the tools to support all three endeavors. So there's a certain amount of hand in glove in all this. Today, conflict of interest flags would be flying like crazy. But there is no reason to think William Bond and his sons were doing anything but acting in the best interest of science and the public. In fact, the Bonds, like the Mitchells, were extraordinarily generous in sharing their discoveries with the world. The Bonds were doing early photography of the night sky, some of the earliest in the world. And so when Mariah went on her first trip to Europe in the 1850s, George Bond gave her a small glass plate mm-hmm. and to show it to the different astronomers she might meet while she was in Europe. So she was helping to introduce early astrophotography to Europe for the Bonds by simply bringing it with her. She would meet just about every you know, astronomer, gain access to just about every observatory in Europe with her trip in the 1850s and then her second trip in 1873. You know, it's just kind of a slip. Oh, will you take this with you and show these <laughs> glass plates to whoever? And then you realize it's actually that's a very big deal, what right. she was being asked to do and what she was doing, because she was helping to spread that. In future episodes, we will continue to focus mostly on Mariah. But I would be remiss not to mention the other Mitchell siblings, who each led interesting and successful lives. William Forrester Mitchell, who's one of the founders of the Industrial Arts Program at Howard College, now Howard University. And he had gone into the South during and after the Civil War and worked with Freedmen's Aid Society. He taught tinsmithing, which he had learned from his uncle Felix Mitchell, William's youngest brother. Henry would go on to work for the Coast Survey. He would teach at MIT. You name it, he did it. He would also be one of the founders of the National Geographic Society. Uh, her sister, Phoebe Mitchell Kendall, who was first woman to be serve as a, on the Cambridge, Massachusetts school board. Her sister, Anne, who taught languages down at the Coffin School here on Nantucket. She, they called her like the Lady of Many Tongues. All of them would be members of the Association for the Advancement of Women. Phoebe, in fact, actually served on the Dress Reform Committee when they came up, were developing the whole idea of women wearing bloomers. So like, you know, the pants with the short skirts, which you know, came back about 10 years ago when people were wearing like jeans with short skirts over them. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I can I can only imagine what Phoebe thinks right now. <laughs> so they were all just, again, they were just all remarkable in their own right. And that kind of influence of where they went and what they did. And they're quite a remarkable family. The legacy of the Bond siblings would not see the same longevity as the Mitchells. And all but one's life would be cut short by tragedy. And we'll get to that eventually. Next week, we are going to discuss the confusion and controversy that followed Mariah's discovery of the comet. So they write their letter and a whole brouhaha ensues for like a year because Mariah didn't do it right. And so there were two other people who saw it. Her calculations showed that she saw it before them, but they had basically awarded it to someone else. We'll also find out how the Bond boys proved to be too successful for their own good and ended up in hot water with the Coast Survey. The head of the Coast Survey, Beige, was ripping. He was livid. I control all publicity. Everything goes through me. I'm making sure that everything I do serves a political purpose, and you guys are grabbing the headlines. That's next time. This has been a production of the Nantucket Athenaeum. 
It was written, edited, and narrated by me, Janet Forrest. Special thanks to the Athenaeum's Reference Library Associate, Jim Borzileri, and historian and deputy director of the Mariah Mitchell Association, Jason Leonardo Finger, for their research and insights. Please check the show notes for more information and sources on the research. If you enjoyed this podcast episode, please rate, review, and subscribe. It helps others find the show. If you really enjoyed it, please share it with a friend or a colleague. The Nantucket Athenaeum is located at 1 India Street in Nantucket, Massachusetts. We would love for you to stop by. You can visit us online at nantucketathenaeum.org. Stay tuned for our next episode of The Bonds, The Mitchells, and The Dawn of Time.